Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing, O Lord, in your sight. Amen. Uh, I'm not sure you can imagine my thrill when I learned that our Lenten series would be focusing on the disciple Peter. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. I relate strongly to that guy. In hindsight, it's rather funny that I was accosted immediately after worship last year by someone who felt that I had done Peter a horrific disservice by intimating that he was sometimes a bit slow on the uptake. It wasn't funny at the time, though. Uh, preachers are a bit fragile right after the service ends. Not a great time to come for us. But now I reflect on the incident with laughter. And so I will warn you all up front, just in case anyone has similar concerns. I adore Peter precisely because he is so beautifully flawed and fabulous. He is real and he is relatable especially to those of us who have a bit of a tendency to speak before pausing to think it through. Those who have found ourselves occasionally seeking forgiveness instead of permission. And those of us who act first and ask questions later. His heart is good, he just wears it on his sleeve. Peter is passionate and a wee bit impulsive. Peter is both steadfast and unsteady, a dear friend and even at one time a betrayer, a follower and a wanderer. I can't help it. In Peter, I often see myself. What about you? If you look honestly at your life, particularly your life of faith, do you not see a bit of a wandering heart? Even if you wouldn't characterize yourself as impulsive, a character trait I realize is found less frequently among staunch Presbyterians. But we are here. We are here. Peter's journey is not polished. It is not linear or perfect. But he is always tethered to the love of God. Tell me you can relate. When you look closely at Peter's story, you find Jesus at each step along the way, offering him abundance, catching him when he begins to sink, challenging him when he stands in the way, washing his feet, predicting his betrayal, and offering him love. This Lent, we're joining Peter in figuring out faith. We're not idolizing the man, neither are we vilifying him. Instead, we're hoping to wander alongside him, open to what we might learn about Jesus and ourselves by walking in his shoes, sandals probably. I will maintain my stance that Peter is perhaps the most human, the most accessible of the disciples. He's the most relatable. He is imperfect and he is beloved, just like the rest of us. I am thrilled to bits to be spending the next six weeks following Jesus by following Peter. 
by watching the story of Jesus unfold through the eyes of a very normal human being trying to figure it all out, just like you and me. And so this morning we begin at the beginning, sort of, the calling of the first disciples. Mind you, it is worth noting that the calling of the disciples plays out differently in Luke's gospel. Unlike in the three other gospels, Luke's Jesus is already well known. He is known to people already as a teacher and a healer. In fact, before Simon Peter decides to up and follow the young rabbi, he has already hosted Jesus at least once for dinner. Moreover, Jesus has miraculously healed his mother-in-law. It's kind of interesting to me that after that healing, there is no response from Simon. So I'll leave that with you to interpret. Some people really like their mother-in-law, so maybe they'd want to stick around home more. Others, maybe not so much. Either way, it is not until later, until after Jesus' teaching and the miraculous catch of fish, that Jesus makes the formal invite, and Simon Peter agrees to follow. So unlike in the other Gospels, you can see here that Luke is suggesting there might have been a bit more courting, a bit of relationship built between Jesus and his would-be disciples before they all set off together across the countryside like Robin Hood and his merry men. I highlight this to you this morning because I think there is a misconception that just one day all the disciples picked up and followed Jesus immediately, out of the blue, without any prior knowledge of him. We often characterize them as having made these giant leaps of faith. It's important to recognize that Luke tells this story differently. Simon Peter already had some kind of kinship or friendship, knowledge on which to base this life-changing decision. Jesus had been poking around in Peter's life for some time before he summoned him to his side. There's another factor I think we miss, not by any fault of our own. I actually, I think there's two reasons why we miss this next bit. The first is simply because we live more than 2,000 years and a world away from the original audience. I don't think anyone, I stand to be corrected, but I don't think that anyone inside our sanctuary right now is a subsistence farmer or fisher. That is farming or fishing just for your and your family's survival. I don't think so. I think people here go to the grocery store for the most part. The other reason we miss this important factor is that we have boiled the whole notion of discipleship down to sacrifice. How many times did we read, hear, teach, or even preach that disciples left their jobs to follow Jesus? How often, when we were younger, was the message of the calling of the first disciples molded to encourage and inspire us to become missionaries? To give up everything, to go fish for people, save the lost, evangelize the world, like the apostles, like Jesus, a heroic calling to be sure. That's what God wants true believers to do, drop your nets, walk away from everything immediately, and go after Jesus. Sacrifice it all. 
Give up your dreams, your hopes, your ambitions. Surrender, follow, and let me add, if you were a woman, submit. But that's not really what the story's about. It's what we've been told it's about, but it's not. And because we aren't all walking around either as subsistence farmers or fishermen or fisher people, uh, and because we aren't all walking around with a firm grasp of first century economics and politics, we miss it entirely. And we are willing to accept that prescribed narrative. I wonder who benefits from that prescribed narrative. When Jesus walked by that lake and called to Simon Peter and Andrew, he wasn't inviting two fellas who had been on a fishing trip to drop everything and hang out. Neither was he calling successful small businessmen to give up what they had worked hard to build. He wasn't beckoning fishermen to leave a good or even a decent livelihood. In the first century Roman Empire, fishing was a miserable job. Cicero once referred to it as one of the most shameful occupations. Fish were, of course, a valuable and important part of the economy. They were a necessary commodity for feeding millions of people across a massive empire. But, but, and this is the part that we don't get when we open the scriptures and just start reading them cold. There is no such thing as a free enterprise fishing business. There were no fishing entrepreneurs. Fishing was entirely controlled by the Roman state, and it profited only the elite. Historian and prolific author Diana Butler Bass has been so informative for me on this matter, thanks to her 2021 book, Freeing Jesus. Rediscovering Jesus as friend, teacher, savior, lord, way, and presence. For the fishermen themselves, she writes, fishing was essentially a subsistence enterprise. While local families often formed small fishing cooperatives, which you can see that in the text, their work was not their own. The best and the biggest fish would be shipped off to Rome for the tables of the wealthy. Fisher folk would get no profit from it since Caesar functionally owned the lakes and all the creatures therein. The best of the catch literally belonged to him. So after Rome took its portion, some middling fish might be sold at regional or local markets. But those fish would be heavily taxed in a system of tariffs, duties, and tributes. And so, functionally, those who actually caught the fish would see very little, if anything, from their sale. It was the leftover small fish, if there were any, that fed the fishermen and their families. It was brutal labor. In the ancient Roman Empire, you just didn't work for yourself. You didn't choose a job or a career. You worked for Caesar. Your entire family worked for Caesar and the empire. 
you, your parents, and your children, and your neighbors and friends were part of a massive political and economic hierarchy which took nearly all the work out of your hands and gave it to the wealthiest people in the empire. And from which you, your relations, and your community received almost no benefit. We don't get that when we just cold read the Gospels. But are you starting to get the picture a little bit? It's certainly not one any of us learned in Sunday school, I didn't, or even from pulpits and lecterns of our youth. Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, bit of a collective there, none of them were middle class. They didn't run a successful business. Perhaps they owned their boat instead of renting it, but most likely not. They weren't even what we think of as working class. They were peasants on the bottom rungs of an extractive and abusive system. And those peasants were often in conflict with the politicians and tax collectors who essentially stole from them. They resented imperial control of their homeland and its lakes and waters. They swam in a sea of injustice. So in light of that new knowledge, listen again. When he, that is Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon, likely exhausted, answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. How does this new knowledge change how you hear the story of the calling of the first disciples? Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee and calls out, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Well, no kidding, wouldn't you? This isn't about sacrifice. This is about Jesus inviting them out of a miserable existence into an entirely different way of life, an alternate way of living. The kingdom of heaven has come near. You don't have to be part of Caesar's empire. It won't be easy, but you don't have to be part of it. Join me as we pursue the long-awaited commonwealth of God's justice and mercy. Biblical scholar Ched Myers writes, There is perhaps no expression more traditionally misunderstood than Jesus' invitation to these workers to become fishers of people. The metaphor, despite the grand old tradition of missionary interpretation, does not refer to the saving of souls as if Jesus were conferring upon these men instant evangelist status. Rather, the image is carefully chosen from Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, where it is used as a symbol of Yahweh's censure of Israel. Elsewhere, the hooking of fish is a euphemism for judgment upon the rich. Amos chapter 4, verse 2. And the powerful, Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 4. 
taking this mandate for his own, Jesus is inviting common folk to join him in his struggle to overturn the existing order of power and privilege. Now, doesn't that land a little closer to what we read about in the Gospels about feeding the hungry and letting the oppressed go free? Instead of fishing for Caesar, they chose to go with this compelling young revolutionary rabbi who promised something different. I will make you fish for people. In Jesus' words, the disciples likely heard the vision of the prophets where the unjust, those who abuse the poor, would be hooked like fish in punishment for their sins. Amos says the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. And Ezekiel threatens the wealthy Egyptians who oppress other nations by saying, I will, pull, put, I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. I will pull you out from among your streams with all the fish sticking to your scales. Fishing wasn't ever about converting people to bring them to church. Whoops, our bad. For the prophets, fishing is a radical snaring of the wicked, wrenching them out of the familiar environs of oppression and setting the world aright with divine justice. Jesus invited the peasant fishermen to fish for people to hook Caesar's elite and beach the empire. When he called them, he called them to participate in God's radical reimagining of the world. Basically, Jesus bid them to angle for justice. That was an invitation they were probably waiting their entire lives to receive. They'd been entangled in Roman fishing line far too long. It wasn't hard to drop Caesar's nets and pick up the hooks of God. But before all that, before all that, this is a part I want you to remember and cling to, church. Because before all of that, Jesus sought them out and formed relationships with them. Because this work, this anti-empire, counter-cultural, revolutionary work is hard. And it must be done in community. And so Jesus forms relationships with them first. Over bread broken at the dinner table, stories shared, laughter and tears, miracles and mutual aid as Jesus used their boat to go out and preach from. Jesus sought them out first. Then they answered the call. Peter answered the call. Living like a rat in the wheel, a cog in Rome's machine, couldn't possibly be the end of the story. Not for them, and it is not for us either. There is another way, a better way. Jesus has been seeking each of us too. He's been at our dinner tables, and like Peter, maybe we didn't recognize the divine in our midst. 
He's been at coffee hour. He's been on the go train. He's next to you at the committee meetings, in line, at the bank, or waiting at the school drop-off or pick-up. He's there already. He's here, calling us, seeking us, and inviting us. Because the relationship has to come first. And then together, we can do revolutionary work for the kingdom of God. As I have done any time, we have worked with the material from a sanctified art. I'll close with Reverend Sarah Speed's poem for this week. And it's called All This Time. She writes, I put my headphones in. I walk quickly. I look towards the ground. I create one million barriers of independence. But God still seeks after me. God leans a rainbow over the sky. God sends sun after the rain. God blankets the earth with wildflowers. God allows music to carry and laughter to rise, all so that I might notice. And when I do notice, the unfurling that begins in my soul is slow and holy and burning. I am not alone. God has been chasing me after all this time. To God be all the glory. Amen.